John chapter 20. Um, lest anyone freaks out and thinks that we've like changed things, I, I, I'm typically, for the most part, opposed to only putting scripture up on video screens and things like that during church, just so you know. Um, th- there's always that fear that, you know, then I don't need my Bible because it's on the screen. Um, I'm not even a big fan myself of reading the Bible on an iPad or an iPod, though I know that's, I'm getting old. I found like four gray hairs this week in my goatee, so I get that. Um, but to me, there's something about just holding and having the Word of God that's different than holding an iPad. Um, and that's just me. Um, but in this particular series, and, and then often, you know, in other passages, when, when it's a parallel text, when it's something other than the main text that we're a part of, we will use this, especially for those who are new, who are joining with us, and, and maybe don't possess a high degree of biblical literacy, don't know where certain books of the Bible are, just to make sure that everyone can kind of follow along with us. Um, and this week, um, the primary text was supposed to be Matthew chapter 5, and that's where I was going to have you turn. And because of this particular series we're doing, we are using slides on a much heavier degree than we would normally. Um, but so, so Carmine, who's been doing all this for us, and if you know him, please thank him for all the hard work he's been putting in. He had to do all of this like days ago because he's actually out of town all weekend. And um, Friday, I think it was, or maybe it was yesterday, um, at the last minute, I decided I wanted to use a completely different text for a big chunk of what we're actually doing. Um, so that it, you can change it. We're stuck with what we got. So we will be in Matthew chapter 5 in a moment, but I want you, if you would, to turn to John 17 and then just hang tight and we'll get there in just a little bit. What we've been doing over the last few weeks, what, wait, what did I say? Suddenly there's pages turning. Why are there pages turning? What did I say? John 17. That's what I said, right? What did I say, 20? I think you just heard wrong. John 17. Maybe it's me. John 17. I'm sorry. That's where we'll be. We're all fallen, broken, messed up under the grace of God. Amen? Amen. All right, so this is where we're going to be. Now, the last few weeks, we've been spending a a season just looking at the mission and core value of of this, or core values of this particular church. Um, We've got one more week to go after this one. Next week is kind of the bringing everything together and talking about what this looks like for us moving forward. We're going to spend some time talking about cultural challenges um, that every church faces, and so it's a really important week to be here. I hope that you'll all make an effort to be here next week. I know it's hunting season. Just shoot it on Saturday, okay? Um, but, um, But that's going to be important. And so um, this week we're going to be, this is the third of that series, and, and what we're really looking at here is the mission of the church. We're looking at um, kind of the, the mission statement, if you will, of our church. Um, and the idea behind this is it promotes unity within the body. We understand where we're all going. We know what to celebrate. We know uh, how to uh, make decisions. It provides clarity for the leadership. For you, it educates you and helps you guys understand the things that motivate us as a church. There's a bird in here. The Holy Spirit has come. Is that a dove? That would be amazing. If you're sitting like right there, ooh, you're in danger. <laughs> Sweet, the Holy Spirit's here, amen. So um, what was I saying? Okay, so unity and, and also, but it helps you guys understand, th- this isn't like me pitching to you, this is how we want to operate the church and we want to get you on board. No, this is what we do. This is the, how we navigate decisions, and these are the things that we look at together. And so this helps you to understand how the church functions, and, and it also helps you, especially those of you that are serving in different roles, different ministries, I mean, this is the filter through which we want to process everything. So um, a really important time for us to be able to do that. So we've been looking at our mission statement, and the mission statement of Heritage Christian Fellowship is this. It says, Heritage exists to exalt the Lord to equip the saints, and to engage the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Week one, we took a a, a season and and just looked, or a period of time, and we looked at this understanding of exalting the Lord. What does it mean to exalt the Lord? That we are designed to worship God, but also that we exalt the Lord in many other ways beyond just singing, though singing is part of it. But that we worship God in everything that we do in our lives, in every moment of every day is an opportunity for us to lay our lives down as a sacrifice before God. 
And that doesn't just mean, and, and we, we, I, hopefully, I hope for you guys, kind of took apart that model that says that the preachers or, or the clergy or the ministry people are the ones who have the real important kingdom work, and everybody else has secular work, and we'll just see on Sunday that, it, that is foolishness in the kingdom of God, that everything we do matters. And I, I've said this before, in the kingdom to come, when, when the Bible says that we will no longer be blinded, we won't see through glasses darkly, we will see things as they are, we will understand Jesus, and Jesus will be here amongst us, in that kingdom there will still be careers, there will still be civilization, there will still be jobs, there will still be all of these things. I mean, you even look, the, the book and the story of the Bible, it starts with a garden and it ends with a city. God is building something. And so you're still going to have functions in life. Sometimes it's scary to people. They think of heaven like we're just going to float around on clouds and play harps all day. No, life will mean more then than it ever has before. But there's one job I'm not sure we'll need, and that's preacher. Because if we already understand, if Jesus is there himself, I mean, what's my job going to be? Hey, guys, um, follow him. <laughs> It's going to be a pretty weak job. So, so this hierarchy that says that the ministry people are the important people, it, it is foolishness. The truth is all of us are ministers of the gospel in everything we do, be it working in construction, driving a cab, teaching children, doctors, nurses, garbage men, whatever it is you do, you are doing it to serve Jesus and you are worshiping in every day of your life. So we exalt the Lord. Secondly, we talked about, I got ahead of the slide, sorry. We talked about exalting the Lord and how we worship one another. The second thing is we equip. The role and purpose of the church is to equip the church, to do the ministry of the church. And so we talked about the core values there, that heritage is theologically driven. Meaning what we understand about the scriptures drives everything we do. And that the purpose of the scriptures is to know God. And so therefore, when we teach the word here at Heritage, our desire is to teach the word as it says and to know God as he is, being very careful not to create a God of our own liking. So when we come across things in Scripture that we don't understand, attributes of God that, that we have a hard time wrapping our arms around, rather than explaining those things away or rather than skipping over and let's just talk about the things we like, we won't do that because we want to worship God as he is. And so we don't seek to craft or form God into our image and make him something other than what his scripture declares. We promote and value biblical literacy. Our goal is that everyone learns how to read and study the word themselves. We're called to disciple making. And we talked about that, that Jesus spent most of his life with 12 men, and he interacted with them, he lived with them, he walked through life with them, and so much of his teaching and disciple-making actually took place outside the walls of, if you will, a formal church or a formal religious gathering. He would be walking down the road and say, hey guys, here, see these lilies? Let me tell you something about God. And so he was constantly teaching and discipling these men as he walked through life. And so too for us, our desire is to come along one another and come alongside others outside the church to make disciples for the name of Jesus Christ. And finally, we talked about how heritage values genuine community. That, that we are not saved into an organization or members of a civic or social club, but we have been adopted into a family. We are part of the family of God, and therefore, we need to understand the importance and value of genuine community that has authenticity and transparency and sincerity and repentance and accountability and all of these things. They're so crucial. The church and the community of the church is a tool of growth and sanctification for us as believers. And the idea, this individualistic notion that so many of us have in our day and age would have been absolutely ludicrous to the early church. Because it wasn't written for that purpose. Even the very letters and mandates in Scripture themselves are never written to individuals. It's to communities. And so the importance of community as equipping, an equipping mechanism and tool for us cannot be overstated. It's incredibly important. And so we look to, to walk through life together to love one another, to shepherd one another, to encourage one another, whether that be through our community groups, whether that be through social activities with friends, whatever the case may be, we want to capture relationships and be intentional with a gospel-centered understanding that we're here for one another, we're connected with one another. 
That that reality that we are brothers and sisters in Christ is far more real than we could possibly understand. To us, birth ties are more real because it's what we see. It's what we know. But there will come a day when that's no more. That will never again be the overwhelming emphasis. The dominant relationship will be the fact that we have been united by the blood of Jesus Christ and adopted into his family. And that's going to be an amazing day. Amen? But it's still true today. And so we seek to live that today. And so that's the idea. So we've spent two weeks now talking about exalt and equip. And today we're going to look at the last aspect of the mission at Heritage. And that is that Heritage Christian Fellowship exists to engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have to put a little bit of a disclaimer. Um, I, I should have a chain on me or something. I should have a leash for this one. Because this is one of those that maybe more than anything that we've covered so far, I can get worked up about. And I can get fired up about and get passionate about. I'll also tell you that historically here in our church, I don't know that there's another topic or emphasis that we as a church have had through the years that has caused us to lose more people than this one. But we are adamant. The Bible calls us to this, and it is supremely important. So I will do the very best I can to avoid soapbox rabbit trails, but we're going to look at this idea of the calling that we exist to engage the world for the gospel. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching. It's the famous teaching called the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus declares the kingdom. He's speaking to the people about what the kingdom of God will look like. And as he does this sermon, he starts out with that famous portion many of us are, refer, are, are, are very familiar with. It's known as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so he's teaching about this kingdom of God and he does these beatitudes, those first 12 verses and then the very next thing of ultimate and purpose, Jesus comes and when he's speaking about the kingdom and more importantly, the people of the kingdom, he says to us in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So in this teaching, Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God and how it looks and how the people of the kingdom of God operate and what the principles and values and and just agenda of the kingdom is. And right off the bat here, he uses three specific things. He gives us this, well, two specific things, I should say, um, analogies, things that are tangible in the world around us that we can use and draw from to understand what God has called us to. Salt and light. The first one's salt. It was used for two main purposes then, just as it is now. We've added a third, ice on driveways. But other than that, salt was used for really two distinct purposes. One of them, salt, was a preservative. I mean, in that day, you didn't have refrigerators, you didn't have freezers. And so in that culture, they would keep animals alive for as long as they possibly could before they would butcher them to, um, to, to eat. The same thing happens when we go to Uganda. You'll see this. You'll, you'll see there was one time the people in Uganda were cooking meals for us and dinner was coming up. And I walked around back and I was just thanking the women there as they were making meals and looking around. And, and I looked to the side and there were these chickens tied up by their feet. And they were just kind of hanging there upside down. And I was like, oh, poor little chicken. And I kind of walked over and was making comments, just trying to, just small talk with the ladies in the kitchen. And I'm just like, so the kitchen's outside and these chickens are here. And I'm like, so is this what we're eating today? And as I got a little closer, suddenly one of those chickens was like, like it was alive. Its head scared me to death. I had no idea they were still there. And so they've got them all tied. And we started referring to it as dangle chicken. That's what we had for dinner, dangle chicken. And it tasted like that. I mean, it took some teeth to get that meat off the bone, but that's life in Uganda. There's no refrigeration there. They don't have refrigerators in their houses. And so what they do is they keep the animal alive as long as they can. But once it's butchered, the decay process starts immediately. And so the the food that can't be eaten in that moment, they want to preserve it for as long as they can. So in this culture, in Jesus' day, they would use salt as a way of trying to combat the inevitable decay of the meat that they had. And so with regards to the kingdom of God and the church and its function in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, you're salt. You're a preservative. 
There is an inevitable decay that is happening in the world all around us. And it's more than just some meat thing. It's more than a refrigeration issue. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis where at the very fall of man, when man sinned and rebelled against God, death and decay entered. And from that moment on, everything is breaking down. Everything is decaying. All of us will one day be in that situation. But Jesus says that the church of God is salt. It's a preservative that the church exists, and one of its roles here in the culture is to push back against that inevitable decay. And so our, our goal here is that there's something about the church and the way it functions in the world that is pushing against and repealing and to the, by, by the glory of God and grace of God and by the Spirit of God, holding off to the best that we can the results and the effects of the fall in the world around us. So when the sick are dying, the church comes and tries to help. When the hungry are starving, historically, it's always been the church that rallies to that call more than anything else. That when we see the world breaking down, when families are breaking down and relationships are strained, it's the church that comes along as an agent of preservation to hold up those who are broken, to, to push against this inevitable decay is coming so that people, when they see this, will understand something about the kingdom that is to come because one day that decay will be gone forever. And so whether we're mowing the lawn, we're fighting against this thing. We're fighting against this curse. You go mow your next door neighbor's lawn. It's more than just a nice act to preserve them, but you're somehow partnering. The book of Romans says that all creation is groaning for the day that the effects of the curse is lifted. And so when we come alongside our neighbor and their yard is unruly, it's a single mom, she can't mow her grass, the weeds are a wreck. When you come in and do that, it's even more than just doing a nice act for someone, but you're testifying to a kingdom that's coming. You're pushing against creation that no longer works in cooperation with men because of the fall. And you're bringing order to a world that is drifting towards disorder. And that alone is a testimony of the reality of Jesus Christ. That the day is coming when the king arrives and he will throw away forever the effects of the curse on this world. And he is the ultimate cure. We're just the preservative, but he is the ultimate cure. And so we are the salt of the world. But, but more than just a preservative, salt is also a flavor additive, is it not? I mean, isn't a, a ribeye's good, amen? But a ribeye with just a little bit of salt and pepper, how good is that, man? Amen? I mean, salt is a flavor additive that, that brings the best out of things. It brings zest, it brings taste, it brings flavor. And so there should also be something about the church that adds flavor to life. That is a blessing to the single mom that can't mow her lawn when you come and do it for her. I mean, I, I like to say it this way. I believe that if, if a church exists in a community, it should operate in such a way within that community that brings life and flavor and, and, and just joy to the people around it so that if that church ceased to exist... If, God forbid, that church was gone, if heritage no longer existed, people should be bummed about that. And I don't mean just us in this room, but I mean people in the community around us. There should be something tangible, a working of the Holy Spirit in our lives and through our church that is a blessing to the community around us. That, that as salt adds flavor and brings life out of food, that we should be able to do the same thing. And so we are the salt of the earth. And we're also the light. He says, you are the light, that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't take light and hide it under a bushel, oh. No, some of you went to Sunday school. That's not the way we did it, though. We said, oh, no. That was the only part the boys liked growing up, was screaming no. But we are the light of the earth. Now, some people misunderstand light of the earth. Um, there's been some, in, especially amongst fundamentalist movements, we'll talk more about them in just a minute, that have viewed this light of the earth idea as some sort of spiritual spotlight. And so they believe the church exists to be the light of the earth, and in, in shining our light, what we do is we stand before men and we just spotlight and point out every little flaw and sin and failure, everything that's wrong. We protest everything. We like nothing. We point out everyone's sin, and we end up judging and condemning and yelling and all of those sorts of things. And there are a lot of people within the evangelical world that actually believe that that's what the scriptures mean when it says that you're to be a light to the world. Is that what Jesus says? Is that what Jesus teaches? It says here that 
In verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says the purpose of the light is not to shine on everyone else and point out all their failures and weaknesses, but the light, instead of being pointed on the world out there, the, point, the light is actually pointed on us so that people will see us as we serve those around us, as we love one another within the community here, but as we love our neighbors, as we serve those around us, as we're blessings to our bosses, all of those things, that there should be something about us that people see and they understand, man, there's something different about that guy. That the glory of it might not make us look good. It's not so that we're just constantly, you know, self-promoting. Look how amazing we are. Look how much money we gave away. Look how, much, uh, how many hungry kids we've fed. No, but that the idea be that as they see that we're going and serving and loving one another and people outside the church, that they would understand something of God. That would make God look good that it would make God be exalted and lifted up, that they would understand there's been a change. This goes back even to week one when we talked about the idea of being gospel-centered, that it's the reality that we have been saved by Jesus Christ and changed by his grace that motivates us to do these things. And so when the world around us sees these things, that's, we're being a light to the world, that there's a better way, that there's a God who saves, that there's a Savior who's coming, and that your story doesn't have to end with divorce or abuse, or cancer, but that there's a greater story written by a great author, the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's who we are. We're the light. We're the salt. And so as Christians, there should be something about not just us as a church collectively, but you as individuals too. If you no longer worked at your job, people should be bummed. If you weren't in your position, your boss should be, man, like, how am I going to find a guy to replace someone like that who brings so much joy and zest and life to the office but serves and works and reaches out? He's a preservative. He wants to make our business better. He wants to grow things, not let them decay over time. That's the role of the church in the world around us, salt and light. And so as a result of this, Heritage believes we are absolutely called to engage the world around us for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the call and mission of Jesus Christ. So what are the core values that shape this mission of engaging? What what is it that drives us? What is it that determines how we go about engaging the world around us? There's three things that we're going to point out. Number one is this. Heritage is theologically driven. Now, we've said this every single week, but it bears repeating, and it's applicable every single week. Because again, the idea is what we know about God drives everything that we do. So think about it with this idea of engaging the world around us. What is it that we know about God? The world is decaying. Man rebelled against God. Things are dying. An end is coming. So what did God do? Did he stand back and point at the failure and wait for us to fix it? Did he turn his back as he justifiably could do after we turned our back on him? Did he turn his back and say, "Eh, well, we tried. Let's move on to the next galaxy and start something else. No, God engaged the world around us. Specifically, he incarnated himself. And Jesus Christ became flesh and blood, walked amongst us, took upon himself our frame took upon himself our predicament, went to the cross for our sin, died just absorbing all of the punishment, all of the wrath for all of our sin. But praise God, he rose again on the third day and conquered it all. And the Bible says that he's still engaging. He's put his Holy Spirit in us to help us navigate through life, to empower us to accomplish the work of the ministry. And that Jesus himself is now in heaven where he is our advocate where he mediates before us. He is constantly defending us and praying for us and looking out for us. And even still, the Bible says things like that God has counted the tears of his people. God is supremely involved in the work of his creation. And because of this understanding that we serve a God and creator who has engaged this world, And because of our understanding that as Christians, we're being grown into, drawn into, and formed into, not on the image of God as we were created, but to the image of Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, then we are to engage the world around us, just as Christ has engaged us. 
He didn't wait for us to come to him. He came to us. So first of all, one of the core values of why this church believes so strongly in engaging the world around us is because we are theologically driven. The second is that heritage is to have a missional focus. And I need to do some unpacking. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Heritage is to have a missional focus. The idea is when we are saved, we have not arrived When Jesus Christ saves us, when we understand the gospel of Jesus and we've been forgiven of our sins and we've accepted him as our savior, the spirit's been placed in us, that's just the beginning of the story. We haven't arrived. Instead, the Bible makes it quite clear, we've been sent. See, there's actually three different types of churches, broadly speaking, um, in our culture especially, but throughout the world, really. Three different types of churches. One of them is what's referred to, and I mentioned earlier, the fundamentalist church. Um, And I've heard pastors say this before. It's a really bad name for them because they're no fun at all, the fundamentalist church. The fundamentalist church. Now, the fundamentalist church philosophy dwells heavily on the idea that now that we're citizens of the kingdom of God, we should have absolutely nothing to do with the world that's around us. It's a group that is really just hunkered down waiting on Jesus to return again. And their belief would be the thing that we do to honor God and to obey God and to keep the commandments of God is to make sure we have nothing to do with sin, worldliness, anything at all. We don't engage the world at all. We stay inwardly focused. We buffer ourselves from the world around us and we stay separate from everyone else. This is really the beginnings of the early monastic movement, where the monks came from, where early in Christianity, it was persecution that purified the church. And for many, those who were martyrs and those who were persecuted for their faith, it was like a badge of honor to show that their faith was real. But then when Christianity became mainstream and it was accepted and in fact became an imperial religion, that the throne in Rome, for example, became Christian, there were a lot of people that were frustrated with that. They felt like our faith was purified and uh, tested and shown true through persecution. Now there's no persecution. What do we do now? And so there were large segments of people in the early church that went into what we know now as monasticism. That, okay, then I will prove my faith to God by separating from everything else that's around me. And so people went into the Egyptian and North African deserts and lived in monasteries and lived away from everyone, having nothing to do with any of the rest of the culture as an attempt to show God that they were serious about their faith. So so those within the fundamentalist movement, don't misunderstand me. I, I don't mock their sincerity at all. I do believe there are brothers and sisters in the fundamentalist movement that are serious about their faith, in many ways more serious than we are. We can learn from those in that movement. Um, But I don't know that that's the way to go. Those in that movement would say we shouldn't have anything to do with culture. We shouldn't have anything to do with television or movies or, or internet or, you know, even think of the Amish over in the northeast predominantly part of the United States. I mean, those who would completely withdraw from anything else. And so even in their worship services, we would have nothing that would in any way resemble the world around us. And so you'll have churches, though not all churches that do only hymns feel this way, but fundamentalist churches only do hymns because of this philosophy. The idea is we don't want anything that would even resemble modern music, anything that might possibly make a toe tap or a hip shake, God forbid. We don't want any of that in the church whatsoever, and so we only do hymns, which always makes me laugh, because you know where a lot of the hymns came from, right? They were pub songs. They were bar songs. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was constantly ministering to drunks, and he wanted to teach them the gospel, so he started writing hymns and putting the lyrics to the pub songs that they were all learning in the bars so that they would learn about Jesus. But somehow we believe today that those are the, that's orthodox, the hymns. Whatever, they're great. I love them. Don't get me wrong. But the idea is we want to separate completely from the culture that's around us, have nothing to do with any of that, and it's really the roots of the early monastic movement. So there's not a lot of, other than supporting maybe an occasional missionary or something out there, there's nothing regarding the actual church and that particular community you are part of that is going out and engaging anyone in the world around them. That's the fundamentalist church. The, the second model that you come across very often is referred to often as an attractional church model. What an attractional church does, and you can take this to, to extremes, so hang with me on this. The goal of an attractional church isn't necessarily to build some attraction that people ooh and awe over, though that can be the case. But, but the purpose of an attractional church model is to do things that draw people into the church. 
The overall goal of an attractional church model is just get people through the doors. We'll minister to them while they're here. We'll preach the gospel while they're here. We'll, We'll do all of these things while they're inside the door. But the goal is what can we do here that brings people through the doors? And so as a result, churches that are in that sort of model tend to spend the majority of their budget and their resources on things within the walls because this is what's bringing people in. They might spend money on marketing to get people to come in. They might spend a lot of money on decorations or facilities or grounds or uh, worship, lasers, smoke, whatever the case may be. But anything that they can do to draw people through the doors, because that's the goal. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying their motives are bad. I'm not even saying that there's elements of that that we shouldn't understand and receive from and actually use. I'm not saying that that's all, just build, build, build. The goal for an attractional model is we just need to get them here so that we can serve them. And so there's many churches in our culture around us today that that's why they exist, to bring people through the doors. One of the things that also does, though, that I have always had a hard time with, it tends to hoard the giftings of the people within the walls. Like I can remember talking with a friend of mine and seeing he was involved at an attractional church model, a good friend. It was a gospel-centered church, great church. But he was like, man, I'm serving here and here and here and here and here and here and all these kind of things. And I remember thinking like, what if he wanted to be a little league coach? How great would that be to see this guy go be a little league coach? Man, there's so many dads that just are completely, you know, if, if gone altogether, not involved in kids' lives. And wouldn't it be great for a guy like this with this kind of heart and this sort of um, desire to follow Jesus and make disciples, wouldn't it be great if he was out there coaching Little League where there's kids that need role models? They would have him involved in their life. But the reality of it was he was being so used and hoarded within that particular walls of that church, there was no possible opportunity for him to go do anything outside the church. But in that model, again, the goal is bring everyone in. Once they get here, we can minister to them. And that's the attractional church model. The third way and the way that our church is actually designed and operates is referred to as the missional model. A missional church doesn't just hold to the come and see, but also the go and serve or the go and tell philosophy there. And, and a lot of this is based, even John chapter 20, Jesus says to the disciples, even as the Father has sent me, so I send you. This idea that the church exists comes together, but it has ultimately been sent and is to be sent. Missional churches desire to equip their people, not just to serve within the walls of the church, but to go outside the walls of the church and to use the giftings that God has given them to be salt and light in the community outside us. So whether you're in your job, whether you're coaching Little League, whether you're in your mom's group, whatever the case may be, that your giftings don't just work or operate within the the bounds of a Sunday morning and maybe a Wednesday night, but that you've been gifted to spread the gospel through everything you do throughout the week. And so this is what we are. A, A missional church is just as much, obviously wanting people to come to church to hear the gospel and the preaching, but just as much emphasis put upon sending, equipping, teach. Now take these things and go. And so for us here, this all came about, this sort of philosophy and emphasis that God put on our heart here at Heritage really all came about because of college basketball. See, I'm a college basketball fan. I'm from North Carolina, go Heels. And so you pretty much are if you're born there. And um, just having that philosophy, and we do meet in a gym, and so it helps. When Heritage was starting, we were just praying, Lord, and as I said in week one, what do you want this church to be? I mean, there's so many churches in this valley that are doing so many good things. What's the point in just having another church like all of the others? Is there something specific that you're trying to do? What, what's the point of this church? And the, the model, if you will, that the Lord seemed to just elevate to us in leadership was one of a huddle. Think of a basketball game, a huddle. The idea is at a certain point during the game, everyone comes and huddles together with their coach. And for us, for our model, for this example, right now, we are all in the huddle. Everyone's gathered together. We're on the court. The coach stands up and he gets above his players and he says, okay, guys, here's what we got to do. And he opens the playbook just as we open the word of God to see God's will for us. He opens the playbook to talk about the game plan and the instruction for his team. He gives them water. They get a chance to catch a breath, to actually have sanctuary, to to build up some energy. They get together. Sometimes the coach is saying, you guys are doing great. Sometimes the church goes, what are you doing? Coach, I should say. 
And so they're in the huddle. All these things are going on. Now, in a basketball game, is the huddle important? Come on. Is the huddle important? Yeah, it's really important. I mean, there's a lot of times you're just watching TV games. You're like, call timeout. Your guys are a mess. You've got to pull everybody together. They're tired. They don't know what they're doing, and you're losing. And so a huddle's important. But do you buy tickets to go watch a huddle? I mean, if you're wanting to go to a basketball, you're going to Portland to see the Trailblazers play. If ultimately you got your ticket, you sat down, and the coach just went, all right, huddle up, and they spent the whole time sitting there in a huddle and then said, thanks, it's been great, and left, you'd feel, what's the point of that? No, no the point's not the huddle. The point is that there is a mission to accomplish out on the court. And at a certain point, the coach says, ready, break, and the guys go. And they do what the coach has poured into their hearts, what he's trained them to do. They accomplish the work that they've worked so hard to get to that point for. And so that's what our church has been modeled after all along. I mean, do we take Sunday morning seriously? Absolutely. It is really important. It is commanded. And we always want to do better and better. We want to get better at worship. I want to get better at teaching. I study teachers to learn to be a better teacher all the time. We want to get better at serving new people when they come in. We want to get better with our children's ministry. We absolutely take all of these things seriously. But the ultimate goal is that there's a kingdom mission that God has called us to. And in this culture that we live in today, fewer and fewer, there was a time, man, when people would just wander into a church because they they were in a difficult situation, they didn't know Jesus, they had heard maybe there was help there, and they would just come because it was such a part of our culture. Those days are gone. If we sit and wait for people to come all of the time, either you start having to get cute and creative and find manipulative or almost reward-based ways of getting them through the doors, or you're just going to be waiting for a really long time, accomplishing not a whole lot for the mission of God. But the scriptures seem to say something completely different, that we are to engage the world, not separate from it. Now, you might be saying, hold on, Jeff, hold on. I mean, doesn't the Bible say we're in the world and not of it? Have you heard that before? Would you be surprised to know that's not in the Bible? That's one of those things that we tend to assume is a scripture. It's not actually there. I want you to see what is there. And this is why I want you to turn to John chapter 17. Take a look at John chapter 17. Before we read what Jesus actually says, let me tell you what can be an inherent danger in elevating a philosophy such as we're in the world, not of the world. Is there truth behind that? Yes. And we'll see that in just a minute. But when you say that, man, we are in the world, we're not of the world. Let me tell you how that tends to come across. It tends to come across as if there's a starting point and a destination. So like this, we're in the world, poor us. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And so we'll separate. So that phrase itself can kind of get across a philosophy that says, man, we're in the world, but we're not of it. So push back against anything that's in the world. And that sounds Christian. That sounds religious. That sounds, it even has a sort of biblical sound to it, doesn't it? What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? In John chapter 17, this is Jesus' dying prayer. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's going to be arrested, tried, and executed. And in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, it says this, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That sounds sounds about like what you were just saying, but, but look at what it says. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I'm not asking that you remove them from the world around. They're not of the world. They're of me, but I'm not asking God that you separate your followers from the world around us. Verse 16, they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, but sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And then look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Well, that looks a whole lot different all of a sudden, doesn't it? Now, are we to be separate from the world in our practices, in our passions, in our idols, in the things we serve? Absolutely. In no way 
Am I trying to, to pitch across like, guys, we just got to go out there and do all the same stuff that they do. There's things going on in the world that are wicked and harmful and sinful and that imprison people, themselves and others. And we should have no fellowship, the scriptures say, with the unfruitful works of darkness. So let me be clear on that. Engaging the world does not mean engaging in sin with the world. Amen? Let me say it one more time just in case. Engaging the world does not mean we engage in sin with the world. Amen? Amen. But it does mean we engage sinners. This is a huge difference. I don't have to engage in drunkenness or drug abuse to engage a drunk or a drug abuse, per, someone who is, is addicted to drugs with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm going to have a real hard time reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ if I don't actually talk to them. And if we sit and wait for them to wander through the doors of the church, oh, we might get one here or there. Meanwhile, people around us, guys, they're dying. People are dying around us. There are people in Medford today that will die without Jesus. How do we sit and wait for those people to walk through our doors? There are children today that are being abused. Are we just going to sit and wait? I mean, there are people starving and hungry. And when you read through the scriptures over and over and over, you cannot but see the emphasis that Jesus puts on the fact that, hey, feed the poor. I love them. And so we just wait? We just wait for them to come through the door? Or do we just separate from the world around us and go, nope, we're, gonna, we're not sinning though, Lord. Be proud. But we're not going to engage the world around us. That is, and I say this with grace for those who wouldn't agree with me, but that is supremely unbiblical to have that mentality. What's the point of us being here otherwise? Why not get saved and just shoot right up like those things at the bank you put your money in? They just zap into the thing. Why not just do that? Why be here? I mean, it's not like monasticism that we're here to starve the flesh so that we can prove to God that we're serious. That's not gospel-centered. I mean, never has our faith been dependent on us. Our faith is strong because of the one we have faith in, not because of how we push away from things and how faithful we are, because in reality, our faithfulness is weak. But the one we have faith in is strong. So why else are we here? When you read Acts chapter 1, there's some, I mean, you can go in the fundamentalist movement, for example, can move around to full-on, what do they call those? The uh, Not hoarders, but the other Discovery Channel show that build bunkers. What's that called? Preppers. So we're just going to get together and we're going to store up all our stuff. We're going to store up all our food and we're going to hang together. We will have Bible studies 24-7 and we will just sit and pray and worship and have communion and wait for the day that Jesus comes. And we'll study the current events and we'll know our eschatology and we're going to watch for the day when Jesus comes. But then I go back to the book of Acts chapter 1, what we saw in week 1 of this very series. Jesus ascends into heaven. He tells them, hey guys, go into all the nations. There's only 12 of you on a little hill in Israel, but from here, I want you to take this message to the entire world. And then he just leaves. He just leaves. And they're all standing there, staring up at the sky. And then what happens? The angels appear and they say, what are you doing? He gave you a mission. The world is big. There's only 12 of you. You might want to get going. And that chapter right there, Acts chapter 1, begins the story of the advance of the gospel throughout the world that we today are part of. Can you imagine reading the book of Acts and finding a church in there that just sat around and did nothing and sat on their hands and didn't engage the world around them with the gospel, didn't serve anyone, didn't seek to to feed anyone or anything? Imagine what Paul would have to say. It'd be a great book. Heritage and churches in general exist to engage the world around us. We are called as kingdom outposts. What that means is there is a day coming when Jesus will appear, no longer in theory, no longer philosophically, no longer by faith, not by sight. I mean, Jesus' feet will touch the ground here again. When he does, it's no more Mr. Nice Guy, so to speak. It's not humble servant. It's conquering king. And he will storm into Jerusalem. He will ascend into his rightful throne. 
And he will rule and reign the world the way it was always intended to be run. And it will be, there's an amen coming, absolutely, get ready, amazing. Amen. amen. Okay, but, but do we, just, we don't just sit and wait for that. We don't just go, oh, all right, when it gets here, I'll be ready. I'm going to go watch some football. Like that, that's not the role. The idea is that we now as a church, when you read through Matthew chapter 5 and you understand this, this kingdom mentality and this reality of the kingdom of God, that Jesus, even before he went to the cross, you see John the Baptist, and the repent for what? The kingdom is going to be here eventually. No. He said, repent, the kingdom is at hand. And so we serve a king who reigns today. We serve a king who rules now. And we are participants of a kingdom that exists in absolute reality right now. And so what the church becomes is a kingdom outpost. We become a little shining example, a little snippet, a teaser trailer, if you will, for the amazing thing that is still to come. And so examples uh, in the world around us. Men, dads, we are going to talk about this when we're in Bend. But there are children that have been ravaged by failures within the household. Failed marriages, abuses, all sorts of issues. And these children are wrecked. And so we as a church come around, and when we come across these children, we come across these people that are hurting, we have been given an incredible opportunity to throw arms around them and introduce them to a real family that is without pain that is coming. When we see people that are hungry and starving, we have opportunity to feed them and point them to Jesus so that they might understand there's a king coming that knows our needs before we can even articulate them and he promises that the one that eats of me will never hunger again. And when he comes and overthrows the effects of the curse, when he gets rid of all of this stuff and establishes the kingdom the way it was always intended to be, you will never be hungry. You will be filled. It says our first experience with him is going to be a feast. And so when we gather together to feed one another, to share with one another, to minister to one another, we become this shining little example of what God is bringing, and we pray soon. Our relationships with one another. I mean, man, the world around us, guys, they will cut and run over anything. I mean, end any relationship, marriages, anything. One little snippet of trouble, one little problem. We're friends, I'm committed to you. Whoa, I didn't know you were like that. I'm out and bail. But then we within the church have opportunity to lock arms, to show grace to one another because God has showed grace to us and to exhibit a community that apart from the church would not exist in the world around us anywhere else. Not to make heritage this massive attraction, not to put us on the map, but to point people to the reality of the Savior who's coming, Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, they need this. We need this desperately. And so how are we accomplishing this? All right. Little by little, by the grace of God and led by his Holy Spirit. There's things that we do that are very intentional, huddle groups that are meeting tonight, for example. Um, starting in November, actually, the huddle groups are one, one Sunday per quarter. Instead of having our normal huddle group nights on a Saturday night, our huddle groups will be doing mission and outreach projects in the community. Each huddle group has its thing. Um, someone just came to me, they said, our huddle group is actually going to be doing some work with the Salvation Army. Someone else was saying, we're going to do some work with Hearts with a Mission. Another one adopted a school. Another one's going to work with the Pregnancy Resource Center. And so there's all kinds of opportunities, but all of our different huddle groups are adopting a thing. And once a quarter, those groups, instead of doing the normal meetings, are going to go out into the community, wherever that is, or in their very neighborhoods where they meet. And they're going to be salt, and they're going to be light in a tangible, real way. There's local ministries that we support and participate in. I've mentioned already the Pregnancy Resource Center is one that I'm always fired up about. It's an opportunity to come alongside young women who have become pregnant, um, unplanned pregnancies, and provide abortion alternatives and teach them and equip them to be parents. Um, we do all sorts of other outreaches. There's Thanksgiving food baskets, things like that. The Christmas project that's coming up is always a big thing that we do with OnTrack. And just trying to find ways to continually make this idea of engaging the community and the world around us part of just the natural rhythm of our church. So that if heritage did, God forbid, cease to exist, that there would be something missing in this valley because this was a vessel of the grace of God through the Holy Spirit to the people around them that they so desperately needed. But, but not just in our community. There's global missions 
Um, we do work with Uganda. As you know, we have a sister church in Uganda. Um, we've got a mission trip planned there for February, but even that's kind of on a, uh, what are we going to do? Because if you've been following the news, there's all sorts of uh, issues going on, health outbreaks and stuff. So we're really trying to monitor that um, really carefully. Um, but in that church, we come alongside and serve them by taking care of orphans. Making There's a lot of orphans that we sponsor as a church. If you didn't know this, you're tithing and things like that or helping kids in Africa who don't have resources go get good educations. In fact, one of our, our girls will be graduating from college this year. It's just amazing that we get to do that. Um, and ministering to that church. Um, a, a huge need just landed in our lap, actually. I alluded to it, I don't know, last week or whatever it was. And if you want to be able to give towards this, there's going to be some men at the door at the end of service with baskets, I think. Do we have that, Terry? Is that right? Does anyone know? No one knows. We'll have something. Anyway, um, but our church in Uganda has been evicted from its property, and they have to get out of their building by the end of December. And this has been a regular thing over and over and over that we've been able to negotiate through, uh, but not this time. They've got an actual court order. And so we're at a place now like, look, if that church ceased to exist, people are going to miss them. There's kids that wouldn't be going to school. There's a lot of stuff that wouldn't happen. So what we need to do is we've got to find a way to get them some sort of permanency. So we're going to start collecting a love offering to try to raise up the money to just buy them some property and start building them their own building so that we can do something permanent. They don't have to live in that fear about who's going to come in and evict them. They had bought property years ago. Turned out the deed was tainted. Just a disaster. It's, it's Africa. And so we're going to come alongside and try to help them in that. And there will be men available. We'll figure that out. But over here and next week as well, for those of you that would love to give, and I would encourage you, please give to them. Um, there's just so many other areas. But, but, you got to do more, right, than just feed. Because if we just feed, and this is the pushback against this kind of stuff against outreach. If we just feed them, then what have we done? And there are full-on social justice movements in the world that say, don't worry about anything else, just feed them. But I've got to introduce to you, and we won't be here very much longer, but, but I've got to introduce to you the third aspect of the mission of heritage with regards to engaging the world around us. And that is heritage and every other church on the planet is called to evangelism. If we just give them food and we don't give them Jesus, then we have not met their real need. That's why Jesus says, you want bread, you want food? Well, those who eat of me will never hunger again. A temporary meal is a good thing. It blesses people, it cares for them, but the ministry that we do and the work that we want to do in Uganda and everywhere around here is gospel-centered in that we want to use these as opportunities to bring the gospel to bear to the lives of the people around. Because what we need more than anything is Jesus. And the primary mission of the church no matter what form it takes, no matter what country churches are, are called to, no matter where they serve in different places, the primary mission of every church is people meeting Jesus. And so that's what we're called to. So you're the best employee at your office. You're there first, you leave last, you're working hard for your boss, you're honoring your family, don't make an idol out of it, but you're working hard for your boss and you're serving so that as he sees, man, this guy is just working hard that you can bring the gospel to bear in this guy's life. The mission work we do in Uganda, we're not just wanting to build them a pad so that they can have a place and not just to send kids to school so that their life can be easier. What we're doing is we're training. The vast majority of the work we do when we go over there is training pastors. There is horrible theology, prosperity theology, all that stuff. So we get the opportunities to come over there and train pastors how to bring the gospel to bear in a place that absolutely needs it. But you know what the reality is? Probably the number one mission field in the world right now is actually the United States of America. Like We, we need missionaries here. And, and here's what separates a missional church from so many others, and this is what you have to grasp. Being a missional church is more than just supporting missionaries. Being a missionary is even more than just saying, hey, don't forget, everyone's a missionary. But being a missional church means that we have a core understanding that, that's in our very soul that guides all these things that we do that says our job is to equip people to serve Jesus outside the walls, to engage the world around us, and to be on mission with Jesus. To help you understand that it's not just like go be a missionary in Africa, but go be a missionary at Walmart. Go be a missionary at Albertsons and Safeway and Food for Less. Go be a missionary in Central Point, in White City, especially White City, in Ashland, in all of these different areas. Man, listen, when you leave this place, there are people dying 
without Jesus. And I'll close with this. In retrospect, I wish I'd actually got the video and let you watch it, but a lot of you guys are familiar with our good friend David Sprunger. You guys know him, some of you. Um, those of us from back in the days when we were part of Mountain Christian Fellowship before we launched and planted this church, um, David Sprunger was the wild, crazy, piano-playing worship leader that was just awesome. One of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life. I mean, literally, I can't imagine what you could say about David Sprunger that would be negative. Well, I have something now. The negative is, is that he's been diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. And they're telling him at most four years, could be next week for all they know. And this week, David Sprunger and his wife put a video up. It was on Facebook and social media that I ran across. And he was telling this story with tears in his eyes and choked up, no doubt, because he loves his family. Man, that guy's got such a massive heart and amazing family. But what it really boiled down to, if you listen to what he said, is he said, guys, Tell people about Jesus. And he even said something that just resonated with me when I heard him say this. He said, look, people are weeping for me, the fact that, I'm go- that I could be gone in four years, but you might die first. And my- your next door neighbor might go first. Or your coworker might go first. We don't know. And that's not just some cheesy, manipulative church thing that says you don't know where you're going to go when you go here. That's reality. People need Jesus. So may we be mobilized as a church and equipped as a church as an act of worship to Jesus to engage the world around us. I'm begging you, find ways to have friends who don't know Jesus. Don't be so churchy. If you gotta go to a place to meet some people or rub shoulders with people, don't be afraid of getting dirty. That's what the Pharisees did when they would pull their robes tight and try to not even have interaction with anyone else around. But Jesus, what made him so unique and one of the things that made him so even attractive to people in this day that don't even believe that he's the king is they'll say this, he loved everybody. And he was even described in scripture as what? A friend of who? Sinners. Just like me. Because in reality, that's the only difference. I'm not different than anyone else out there because of the stuff that I do. I'm not any different than anyone out there. I've got my junk, and you've got your junk, and we are broken and fallen and hurting and sinful people, but we have a Savior who is good and perfect and who is taking care of every need we could possibly have, and he has saved me, and he's put his spirit in me, and now he's called me, and he said, Jeff, now you're my boy. You're my son, and I'm going to let you play on my team. There's some other people, Jeff, just like you, that are dealing with things like dads that left, just like you did, that are dealing with things like wandering years through college and rebellion, just like you did, that are dealing with all sorts of these things, and they have all this in their history too. The thing that they don't have that you do is me. So go tell them. Go tell them about me, Jeff. They need to hear. That's what we're called to, Heritage to engage the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May none of our friends, none of our coworkers, ever depart this earth, never having heard the name of Jesus come off of our lips. Amen? Will you guys stand? Let me pray for you. Jesus, we love you for your gospel. We love you for your grace. We're so thankful, Lord, for the fact that you have poured your grace out upon us and that you have saved us. We're so thankful that you did engage this world, that you didn't leave us to ascend to you, but that you came to us. And so, God, I pray that you would reignite or ignite anew a flame, a burning desire in the hearts of every person here to carry your gospel everywhere we go. God, will you empower us and equip us to preach your gospel everywhere we go? to serve and love others. I pray, God, that you would repel fear. Lord, the fears and doubts, the insecurities. But God, may we stand faithfully on the promise that you, Jesus, are the Son of God, the Messiah. And may the very gates of hell not stand against this church. God, may we never pull away from that mission. God, may we never find ourselves drifting to other things May we always understand the first and foremost call of this church is to worship you and to equip one another to spread the gospel of Jesus to the world around us. God, will you by your grace and your spirit keep us true to that mission? 
I pray, God, that you would empower even the words that we say. God, I beg you for a revival of your spirit and of people just turning to Jesus in this valley. Lord, I pray that people would be humbled and repent and and be aware of their need and come to you, the Savior, who is our ultimate satisfaction, the only one who saves. I pray, God, you would do an amazing movement, not just in this church, but in all churches throughout the valley. I don't care what their philosophy or flavor is, Lord. If they're preaching Jesus, may people be saved. And I pray, God, that there would just be something unique and miraculous that happens in this valley that just points people to your kingdom. So, Lord, will you equip your people? I thank you for your grace. I pray, God, this week that we might go as missionaries, that we might go as kingdom outposts, as ambassadors, pointing people to you. And we're so thankful, Lord, for your grace. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. I love you guys. I love you guys. And hey, listen, before you go, next week we're going to kind of bring all of this together We're going to have some activities going on actually after church. I mean, it's almost going to be like a job fair, but a lot of the things that we've been talking about that you can get involved in, there's going to be a lot going on after church as well. Invite people, be a part of it. Um, We're going to be talking too about some pretty intentional and heavy cultural issues that the church faces and how we're going to be facing those things and moving forward from here on out. Um, And again, this week and next week, if you'd be willing to partner with us and just give to our brothers and sisters in Uganda, um, we're going to see what we can do to get that situation rectified so that we can give them a permanent location to build from there in Uganda. Love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday night in the book of Mark, 7 p.m. God bless.